Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Got Upside Down Kingdom, Parables in Luke. It's a seven-week series. Uh, we did the meals with Jesus last year in Luke's Gospel, so we're doing parables in Luke's Gospel. A parable is a short story that uses the everyday affairs of life to give insight into the kingdom of God and the character of God. They are not timeless truths, rather a description of what is happening with an invitation for the reader to step into the story and participate. And what we're going to discover in these parables is that the kingdom of God that we're invited to step into as we hear this parable is very much at odds with the kingdom or kingdoms of the world. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. Where the world values power, status, wealth, prestige, and position, Jesus values the weak, the humble, the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the excluded. Intriguingly, in the Gospel of Luke, a number of the parables are left unfinished or with uh, tension at the end. Why? Because, again, it's Jesus' way of inviting us to respond to the parable. It's an invitation, a challenge to go, well, what are, you, are you going to enter into the parable? And as you do, you enter into the life of the kingdom. They're not timeless truths. It's a reality that's present that you can choose to align yourselves with as you participate in the kingdom of God. Today's parable is the most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And to align yourself to step into the story is to say, I want to learn to love my neighbor with radical acts of kindness and mercy and justice. What is often missed in this parable is the context in which Jesus said it. So if you look at the context, verse 25, it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you can picture the scene, Jesus is teaching in, uh, in, in Israel and uh, in the first century, and uh, he's got the, you know, the teachers of the law, they come and they want to test him, the people that know, they're experts in the Old Testament, and they want to test him uh, to see if Jesus really knows what he's on about. And the reason they want to do that is because if you've read Luke's gospel up to this point, the in crowd is very much different from what the teachers of the law thought the in crowd was. So the in crowd for, for, for Jesus seems to be these prostitutes and these sinners and these Gentiles and the outcasts. And he seems to be suggesting that maybe the religious leaders aren't part of the in crowd because he doesn't seem to be eating with them in the same way that he's eating with all these wrong people. So they test Jesus. Okay, what must I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the age-old question, isn't it? Okay, Jesus, if you're a teacher and you know your stuff, how does someone guarantee eternal salvation? Or put it like this, can we just clarify who the in crowd is for eternity and who the people that are not going to make it? Because these prostitutes and these sinners and the people you're hanging around with, are they in? Are they going to inherit salvation or are we? Now Jesus, as is his usual fashion, answers a question with a question. You ever notice that? He doesn't actually answer the question. With it. He answers it with a question. He puts the guy on the back foot immediately. Verse 26. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? You see, Luke is telling us that this guy's an expert in religion. 
He knew exactly what God wanted. He knew his Old Testament law. He was an expert. He'd grown up every Sabbath going to Sunday school, or Sabbath school, I guess, um, and learning what it was to be a good boy and, and followed God's law. So when Jesus, when he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Jesus says, you tell me. Interesting answer, isn't it? And the man hits you know, the nail on the head. He says, well, to inherit eternal life, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is how, from the Old Testament, you could inherit eternal life. And Jesus affirms him, look, verse 28. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now again, notice, Jesus feels no need now to push an agenda. He's done. You've done it. Go and do that and you're fine. If someone can love God with everything they've got and love their neighbor as themselves, you'll have life. You'll have eternal life. It's good enough for Jesus, but ironically, the guy who gave the answer, the man, it's not good enough for him. He's not satisfied. His answer's correct, but it doesn't give him assurance about his eternal life. Because who, on the day of reckoning, is going to say to God, God, yes, I've loved you with all of my heart, my, my soul, my strength, my mind, and I've loved my neighbor as myself. You or I, and this expert in the law, and every person that's ever lived knows that if that is the standard for inheriting eternal life, none of us qualify. So this, this man's answer is correct, but his answer, which he's given, gives him no assurance for himself about his eternity. And this guy is desperate for assurance. He's desperate for affirmation. Just look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. Remember, Jesus has left the conversation, and the man is staying engaged. And who is my neighbor? Do you see the word justify? It's an old-fashioned word for, borrowed from the court of law, and it means to prove that you're in the right, to justify I'm in the right, to show that you're acceptable. And this man wants that acceptance. He wants that assurance. He wants to prove that he has loved his neighbor enough to inherit eternal life. He has this nagging feeling that he hasn't, so he wants to justify for when the day of judgment comes. Now, this last week, I went to see The Lion King, you know, the remix with, uh, with um, or, or, you know, where they have the actual animals, with, with Annabelle. And as I went, I noticed there's a new Rocky movie out. Like, when is that guy going to die? Like, seriously, get knocked over and don't stand up again. But anyway, the original Rocky, years and years ago, uh, the original movie, just before uh, Sylvester Stallone fights the world champion, Apollo Creed, in the movie, Rocky is doubting himself and his ability to win. And that makes him actually doubt his very personhood and his identity. Because he says he used to be a nobody. And he fears that if he loses the fight, he's still a nobody. So how is he going to justify himself to himself, to the world, to his coach, if he loses? And he says this. He says, it doesn't really matter if I lose this fight. It really doesn't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go the distance. No one's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can get to go that distance, you see, and that bell rings, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know, for the first time in my life, see, that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. How does Rocky justify his existence if he loses the fight? How does he prove he's not another bum from the neighborhood? by going 
the distance just by being there at the end. That's how he's proved himself. He's not a coward. He's not a failure. He didn't give up. That's the minimum marker that made him justified. And we all have minimum markers that means we can face the way I'm justified. I remember in my final year of university, it was two weeks before the exams, and I suddenly realized there was a good chance I was going to fail my maths exam. And I, might, yeah, and, and I panicked. I couldn't sleep. I was anxious. I, I couldn't revise because you know, my mind was going 100 miles an hour. And what bothered me was not so much that I was going to fail the exam, but by failing the exam, I would be a failure as a person. What gave me value as a person, how I justified myself, was through my achievement, through passing exams. And the thought of failing, well, what would my friends think? What would my family think? What would I think? Failing meant I was a failure because to use the language of Rocky, I hadn't gone the distance. How would I justify myself? That is what the man in the story needs. That's what Rocky needs. That's what I need. That's what we all need. We all need a moment to say, you're valuable. You're justified. You're acceptable. Why is that? Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tells us that in the beginning, we had God's approval and we therefore needed no one else to approve us. Because God loved us, it says we were naked and unashamed. We had no need to prove ourselves because God gave us everything we needed. But then Genesis 3 says, as sin came into the world, we lost our certainty that God approved us. We no longer knew we were acceptable as a person, and we experienced a hunger to find that approval in other places. That's why Rocky had to go the distance. That's why I had to pass the maths exam. That's why this man comes to Jesus and won't let Jesus go, even though Jesus will let him go. That's why every one of us has that nagging feeling. Am I really valuable as a person if I don't achieve much in life? What's the minimum marker? The man needs assurance for his soul. He says, he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, would you make Christianity a list of do's and don'ts that I can tick off and then I'm okay? Would you give me KPIs, you know, business key performance indicators that I can measure and then I give my assurance. And you see, he wants to quantify. Look at this, you see, verse 29, he goes on and says, uh, what did he say there? And uh, he says, uh, and who is my neighbor? He wants to know, just tell me who my neighbor is and I'm sorted. Well, let, and Jesus says, you want to know who your neighbor is? Let me tell you a story. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho Road was a very famous road, 17 miles long. It descended 3,300 feet. It's just about the height of Carantool in County Kerry. The road was rocky and lined with good caves that made good hideouts for robbers and bandits. It was notoriously dangerous. Walking the road would be equivalent to walking the most dangerous places of inner city Dublin at night. And the man in the story gets attacked and ends up <coughs> naked and unconscious on the side of the road. It's as bad as it gets. But verse 31, thank God, a priest walks by. Because priests were number one in God's house. They were top of the temple hierarchy. They were God's servants. Surely he would help him out. And what's more, priests were actually quite wealthy. And so they wouldn't be hiking the 11-mile journey. He'd probably have a donkey, and he'd be able to put the, the, the man on the donkey. But you see, this priest isn't sure because the law of God in the Old Testament says if you touch a dead body, you're defiled. And if you're defiled, you have to go through three weeks of you know, purification, no eating with, you know, he wouldn't be able to eat in the temple, he wouldn't be able to accept the tithes and offerings, there'd be a financial implication. So he passes by. He's more bothered about his own comfort than helping a helpless stranger. He's more bothered about keeping himself clean than getting on his knees amongst the blood and the sweat of a beaten up man. 
and he passes by. But panic not, verse 32, who's coming next? A Levite. He's next down in the temple hierarchy. And you know what? Levites assisted the priests with songs. And you know, if there's ever someone with compassion, it's always the ones, the singers, the musicians. They're so in touch with the emotions. You know, like someone like me, I'm not in touch. I could pass by. But Leanne, she's way more empathic than me. You know, she wouldn't pass by. The musicians are always caring. But the Levite thinks, well, if the priest can get away with it. So instead of stopping him, getting himself dirty in the sweat and the blood of this naked man, he carries on with his own day. And then it's game over. Because who comes next? A Samaritan. His luck is out, this, this beaten up guy. You see, the Jews and Samaritans were arch enemies. Racial tension was huge. The Jews were pure, but the Samaritans, who were Jewish from history, had married foreign people, worshipped foreign gods, and got involved in ungodly practices like burning their children and sacrifices. The Samaritans were traitor. They were disloyal to God. They were ceremonially unclean, socially outcast, religiously heretical. And the expert in the law and the other scribes listening to this story would know that there'd be no help from this half-breed traitor. But here the story explodes in the faces of the listeners. The hero is not the Jew, but the hated outsider. And it is very hard for us to understand the sting in this story and how outrageous it is without putting it into a modern-day context. This is a story of two enemies. If you're familiar with gangland warfare, or at least the, hopefully not firsthand, but in Dublin, a man from the Kinnahan gang fell into the hands of some thugs on Sheriff Street, and a man from the Hutch gang went and helped him out. A white Zimbabwean local falls by the side of the road. The church vicar passes by because he doesn't want to get unclean. The missionary doctor passes by because he has more important matters. And Robert Mugabe steps in to help him out. George Bush goes to visit the American soldiers serving in Afghanistan and falls down on the side of the road injured, unable to carry on. He's completely exposed to the enemy. The commanding officers run for their lives because they can hear the troops and they hear the gunfire in the background from the Taliban. But Osama bin Laden walks by and picks George Bush up. It's ridiculous. That's how it sounded to a first century Jew. A priest, a Levite, a Samaritan. They're talking about the big enemy. The hero isn't religious. He's not the national leader. He's the person our side loves to hate. The hero is the Hutch gang member or Osama bin Laden. That's the hero. It's offensive. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. That's the point. The hated villain, the Samaritan, turns out to be the hero. And look what the hero of the story does. This hated traitor, verse 33. But when a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. That's the starting place. Instead of seeing an enemy, he saw a person. Instead of worrying about his own purity, reputation, comfort, prejudices, he saw a person in need. And he took pity. Something in, in went into the heart beyond all those racial barriers. Something penetrated. Verse 34, he went to him 
and bandage his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He provides medical help. The oil and the wine act to cleanse and sterilize the wound. This is where the Levite fails. And then he says, then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Where the Samaritan shows up the failure of the Levite by caring for his wounds, the Samaritan shows up the failure of the priest by giving him transport. But there's more, verse 35. The next day he took two denarii, a denarii is a, a day's wages, And he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you any extra amount you have. To top it all off, he not only shows up the priest and the Levite by by providing medical aid and transport, he spends money on this beaten up man, compensating for the thieves and what they've taken. Two days' wages would have covered one or two weeks' lodgings. The love the Samaritan shows is remarkable. Physical help, medication, transport. Emotional help, friendship, companionship. Financial help, organizing lodging and food for two, two weeks. Follow-up help, ensuring the man recovers. It's not like, okay, I've done my bit, I'm off. He says, I'll come back. You see that? And I'll double check if there's any extra. I'm going to follow through on helping for the long haul. But not only did it cost him his time, his money, his energy, it may well have cost him his life. Think about it. The Samaritan risks his life by transporting the man to an inn where... In Jerusalem, capital of the Jews. How would it have looked? A Samaritan's got a half-dead Jew on the back of his donkey. What are they going to think as he walks into the capital city of the Jews? Again, put it in modern-day terms. Osama bin Laden helps George Bush up, puts his cloak around him, puts George Bush in uh, his truck, and drives him back into the American camp. What's the Americans going to do with Osama bin Laden? It sounds crazy, the parallels aren't perfect, but I think you get the sting of the story the original listeners had, who were experts in the Jewish law. And they knew the history, 2 Kings 14, when the Samaritans head off, you can go and read it. And so do you get the moral of the story? Do you see what Jesus is getting at? This expert has come to prove himself, to justify himself, to make him good enough to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, well, what does the law say? He says, love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's so keen to make it quantifiable and measurable. He says, okay, but I just want assurance because I'm not sure. So who is my neighbor exactly? Jesus doesn't actually ever tell him who his neighbor is. He says, go be a neighbor. Again, Jesus doesn't, go, doesn't sort of take the man's premises. And how does the story end? Which of these three do you think was a, was a neighbor to a man who fell into the hands of robbers? He's snookered, isn't he? Verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who is not quantifiable, it's about mercy. How do you quantify mercy? The one who had mercy, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In other words then, Loving your neighbor involves an attitude of unlimited mercy even on your enemies at the infinite cost to yourself. Can you imagine the tension that this story created when it was first told? What we discover with Jesus is that a correct interpretation of the Old Testament law is to focus on the spirit of the law over the letter of the law on the weightier matters of love, justice, and compassion, rather than the box-ticking exercise of remaining pure and acceptable and giving yourself assurance. Jesus had taken this man's narrow understanding of the law and said, can you love your enemy in the hardest situation, possibly to endanger your own life? And is there, you know, the heart of the, the actual parable is this idea that he saw and had pity 
And that's why at the end it says, have mercy. It's an attitude of the heart. And said, so, do you know why this love is so hard? Because you don't get anything in return. How did, what did the Samaritan get in return for his love? Potentially, well, he, he spent lots of money on him, lots of time, lots of emotional energy, and potentially lost his life. It cost him so much and only danger, and he got nothing back. You see, when life is all about proving your worth and justifying yourself, the things we do, we do because they benefit us. I'm going to gain if I do this. When life's about achieving your goals, why stop for someone that's not going to help you? When life's about justifying yourself, why would you stop for the enemy? You might stop for a friend that would pay it. They might stop for a famous person. They'll sort of give you some kind of kudos. You might stop for a superior because, you know, they can give you a step up in life. But the love Jesus is talking about is loving someone that's really wound you up, that has nothing of offer to sort of give you back, has hurt you, has disagreed with you, has insulted you, has taken you for granted, has, you know, doesn't give as much into the friendship as you give into the friendship. Jesus is saying, that's the person you love who cannot repay you, but costs you emotionally, financially, in time, in follow-up, physically, mentally, it will go against your instincts. It will affect your comfort. It will affect your schedule. It will change your heart. Might I dare say in today's <laughs> success-driven world, it might stop you going up the ladder a step. The Samaritan had to take at least a day off, didn't he? It will affect your status in society because you'll be hanging around with the dirty, bloody, sweaty people on the side of a road. It will be practical, time-consuming, costly, sacrificial, demanding love in your enemy with unlimited mercy at the infinite cost of yourself. It will be... Impossible. And that's the point. For you, for me, for the expert. Jesus says you want to inherit eternal life, you want to justify yourself, you want to know the minimum standards, you want to tick every box, you want to make it quantifiable, go and show unlimited mercy on your enemies all of the time at infinite cost of yourself, and we can't do it. But there was one who did it. There was one who, instead of walking by the other side of the road, breaks into our world from the outside, disregards the pain the effort, the sweat, the blood, the tears. And he puts oil and wine on our wounds and bandages us up. There was one who showed unlimited mercy to his enemies. Father, forgive them. Luke, in chapter 9, verse 51, it's the, it's the change of the whole book. It's the, it says he's on his way to Jerusalem himself. Jesus is on his Jericho road. He's literally heading to Jerusalem to the cross. What's going to happen? He's going to be stripped naked. He's going to be beaten and bruised. He's going to be left to die outside Jerusalem and everyone will pass by and all they'll do is mock him. He, but he won't make it through the night like the man in the story did. But Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds we are healed. Where we fail, he did it. And his love meant, and we just sang about it so well, that we're adopted into God's family, not by anything we do, not by our trying to justify ourselves, but by the grace of God. I've known a few adopted children. When a child is adopted, they're normally below an age where they know they're being adopted. They're completely passive. They're at the mercy of the choice and the love and the actions of parents that they can't even understand at that time. They have no part to play in their adoption. They cannot prove themselves to be adopted. They cannot justify themselves. But they're adopted because someone had mercy on them. 
And what is one of the rights of being a child? When the legal papers come in, I've been adopted into the family. What is one of the benefits? Inheritance. This man wants to inherit eternal life. Well, inheritance isn't something you earn or attain. It's something you receive as a gift because you're a child. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan who comes from the outside when we were helpless and says, I chose you, I accept you, I approve you, I justify you, I think you're valuable, I want to adopt you into the family, I want you to know God is your father, I will give you eternal life, and I will follow through whatever it takes. I'll come back and make sure I pay what these you paid so you can be saved. And to the extent that Jesus is your justification in life, for your whole existence, he gives you all your approval, you'll be freed up from feeling, I need to prove myself. When you see Jesus crossing over the road from you, bandaging up your wounds, taking you to his father's house, how much more valuable could I be? I don't need to prove myself by what I do. He'll free you up to be able to serve and love like the good Samaritan did because you don't need anything in return. You'll be free to go and love your worst enemy because you have everything you need in Jesus. Ken Bailey, whose commentary I found so helpful on this, says this, if the one who serves is supposed to be sustained by the responses received and if the expected responses are not forthcoming, that person may well give up in frustration and disappointment. But if costly acts of love are extended to others out of gratitude for the love of God, then the believer is sustained by the unwavering love of God towards him or her. You'll be able, you'll allow people to disrupt your time and your schedule when they don't benefit you because you're sustained by the unwavering love of God, not by their response to your act of mercy. You'll be able to take risks that scare the life out of you, and you might even fail, but you're sustained not by whether you fail or succeed, but by the unwavering love of God. You'll be able to love people who only take from you and you feel drained by them because you're sustained by the unwavering love of God. One of Luke's big agendas in the whole gospel and in his parables and in this parable is to show us that if you participate and enter into the story of Jesus and his kingdom, you will use your money, like the Good Samaritan did, radically different from the kingdoms of this world. And you'll only use your money so radically generously if money has no hold on you, because Jesus has a hold on you. And money gives you no significance, no security, and no purpose. Jesus gives you those things. And when Jesus' love, that unwavering love, comes to you and gives you that, you go, I can't use my money for anything now. I need to be a steward, and of course that stuff. But there's a freedom to use my money, my home, my possessions for others. You'll never be able to show unlimited mercy towards your enemy at the infinite cost of yourself until you, sow that, until you see and taste and enjoy that Jesus did that for you. But on the flip side, remember who he's speaking to, an expert in the law. If you're not sustained by God's grace and his love towards you and you're always trying to prove yourself through your own performance, serving others may start off with enthusiasm but will quickly become a burden. Well, what are they doing back for me? Have you felt that in your heart? I have it. We all have. We're suddenly going, what's in it for me? I'm not sustained by God's love. I'm, I'm trying to get something back from this. Your walk with God will be a ticks box exercise. Have I done my religious duties? The Christian life will lose joy. There'll be no enthusiasm. You'll lose the privilege and awe of being a child of God through the sheer grace of God. You'll be relating to God as a slave. Well, I do my bit, and I know I'm a bit of a slave here, God, but now you need to do your bit, rather than a child. 
Instead of loving God and loving your neighbor out of gratitude, you'll always feel, I probably haven't loved my neighbor enough, have I? I'll have a nagging feeling that, you know, like this man, I haven't quite been good enough. Rather than going, no, I haven't, but I've been accepted and loved, and now I'm free to go and love others. So until we taste Jesus hasn't passed by on the other side of the road, he became dirty, sweaty, and bloody, so you and I could be healed. We'll stop being like the experts in the law, trying to justify ourselves, and we'll enjoy being a child of God, and we'll enter in to all the mess of loving people, but we're sustained by the unwavering love of God. And that's what excites me. Imagine if Christ City Church could taste this Samaritan love of Jesus for ourselves. Imagine the dent we'd make in the kingdom of darkness here in Dublin with all the social needs that are prevalent to our eyes every day and all the people in, the, in Dublin who feel beaten up by the side of the road with no one noticing them. They're everywhere. And not just the homeless, just in life. You know, there's just people who feel they're just forgotten and no one values them. But then there's an army of believers so overwhelmed by the mercy of Jesus that we spontaneously see the need and a person We take pity and we follow through with time, money, resources, emotional energy and long-term follow-up from a place of knowing we are already justified in Christ and none of that gives us any merit. Why does it need to give us merit? Maybe God willing, the Spirit would stir up in our church, this is our prayer, a mercy ministry, a good Samaritan ministry, helping the most vulnerable in Dublin with medication, with emotional support, with follow-through support, with time, actionable ways of demonstrating the love of God, all from a place of being sustained by that love. And so I encourage you this week, let the love of Jesus drive you out of yourself towards the person in front of them, to see them as a person, particularly that person you find it hard to love, and love them knowing that God has loved you in a similar way. This week I was overwhelmed, and I put it on social media, of a guy in a, a Dallas courtroom, you see that? And his brother had been killed by a woman and it was a, she'd misunderstood and she was in, you know, being sentenced and he gave his um, client impact statement. And he said, uh, I forgive you. God forgives you and the best thing you can do is give your life to Christ. And then he wasn't sure because it's against all the rules of the courtroom. He said to the judge, can I go and give her a hug? You see that? And he goes up to her and they hug for like minutes, like sh- she's shaking the love she's received from the brother who was killed. And then the judge is overwhelmed. The judge goes and finds her Bible and gives it and says, this is the best thing you can do in prison is to read this. And all the officers in the courtroom are pouring their eyes out. Mercy came. Someone would have been overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for them that they offered it to their enemy. May we do the same. God help us. Do you want to stand? We're going to pray. And uh, we're going to sing. Father, I pray this story would not, uh, would not now give us a load of to-dos. Lord, you, you use the story to highlight that we cannot do this unless we realize that you're the good Samaritan and we're the one that's beaten up and we're the one that's been passed by. Uh, we are the one passing by. We're, we're the one that needs that love when we don't deserve it. But Lord, when we experience that from you and we see you getting bloody and dirty and bandaging us up and taking us to your Father's house and doing whatever is needed to follow through to Lord, it it moves us. And I pray we'll be more moved by what you've done. And in turn, we find a new freedom 
to, to realize the joy and the privilege and the status we have as your children and our inheritance, which is eternal life that you want for us. And we thank you that we can have assurance. We don't need to be like this man going, am I good enough? You were good enough and you did it and we receive it as a gift and we say hallelujah, we praise you. In your name, amen.